This is Thomas Wayne Riley, and welcome to the American Southwest. The Buffalo Soldiers, Part 4, Cavalryman's Paradise It just stayed quiet, and there was just the wind, just the sound of the wind in the sky, and there's nothing around me but Yosemite, and the sound of my horse, and me, breathing as we moved along the trail. And I started thinking that this is what freedom must feel like. Never felt freedom when I was a sharecropper growing up in South Carolina. Never knew about freedom when my mother and my daddy had been enslaved. Freedom was this wind. Freedom was this rain. Freedom was being pushed up into the sky by these mountains beneath my feet and the rain and the rain and the rain coming down. That was freedom. A Lizzie Bowman, Sergeant, Troop K, 9th Cavalry Buffalo Soldier. So a Lizzie Bowman is actually a fictional character created by Ranger Shelton Johnson of Yosemite National Park, who has for years worked to uncover the history and stories of the Buffalo Soldiers, especially when it comes to their time at the national parks. He has a series of great recordings and journal entries he's written for this fictional trooper that I wish I could have just played for y'all, but I wasn't quite sure on the copyright, so I just quoted him instead. But I do implore you to visit the National Park's website if you're interested and hear some of his recordings. He paints a beautiful picture, and he's got a great voice to do it with, even better than mine. An act to set apart a certain tract of land lying near the headwaters of the Yellowstone River as a public park. That is the name of the act that President Ulysses S. Grant signed into law in March of 1872, which officially established Yellowstone National Park as the nation's first National Park. Located in the then territories of Wyoming and Montana, Grant established it, quote, as a public park of pleasure and ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, end quote. The later establishing of subsequent parks, such as Sequoia and General Grant, which is known to us as Kings Canyon National Park in California, fell under the control of the Secretary of the Interior, but securing and maintaining such vast tracts of land immediately became a problem. So, until the National Park Service was created by President Woodrow Wilson in 1916, the management and security of the parks fell to the troops stationed at forts and bases located nearby. In 1886, Company M of the 1st Cavalry Regiment was temporarily sent to patrol and protect Yellowstone, but instead, the Army stayed in the park for 32 years. In Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks, our friends the Buffalo Soldiers, whom we've learned so much about over these past few episodes, were sent to serve over the summers of 1899, 1903, and 1904. 
about 500 of them from the 24th Infantry, which we haven't talked too much about, and the 9th Cavalry served in those posts where they were given a plethora of jobs to complete over the vast area of land that the parks encompassed. I'll just run down the pretty exhaustive list of duties the Buffalo Soldiers, or as they were called after the Spanish-American and Philippine-American War, smoked Yankees, took care of while posted at the parks. They had to confiscate firearms, which I am not a fan of learning about, curb poaching on account of the overhunting of many species by the locals, they stopped the theft of timber and other natural and cultural resources, like archaeological artifacts, they had to suppress and extinguish fires, patrol towns in the vicinity, and end illegal grazing of livestock within park boundaries. There weren't any courts or judges within the area to enforce park regulations, so that duty had to fall on the Buffalo soldiers, who had to be simultaneously strong and diplomatic. I read that sometimes they would corral a shepherd and his flock before depositing the sheep herder at one end of the park and his sheep on the other, some 125 miles away. That seems a bit extreme, but I guess it came with the territory. They were the law and order in this rugged mountain wilderness, after all. They also forged a road to the base of Moro Rock, which allowed the public access to Sequoia National Park for the very first time. They also oversaw the construction of many other roads and trails, one such trail being the first trail up to the 14,505-foot peak of Mount Whitney, which is the tallest mountain in the lower 48. But at the time, it was the tallest mountain in the entirety of the United States. Remember, there was no Alaska yet. Well, America didn't own Alaska yet. The Buffalo Soldiers also built an arboretum in Yosemite National Park near the South Fork of the Merced River in the summer of 1904. I read that the trails they established in the area were the first marked nature trails within the United States National Park System. Outside of California and Yellowstone, they also served as rangers in Hawaii and Glacier National Parks. N. F. McClure of the 5th Cavalry in the Journal of the U.S. Cavalry Association in 1897 wrote about being stationed in the Sierra Nevadas that, quote, It is the cavalryman's paradise. There's food and drink for his horse everywhere. Though the cold of spring and autumn may be biting, though the life may be lonely, though the work may be difficult, still, happy is a soldier whose lines fall amid these scenes of grandeur and sublimity, where nature has put forth her mightiest efforts, end quote. While duties for the Buffalo Soldiers in the National Parks of the Sierra Nevadas may have been unusual, they were certainly welcome. The third black graduate of West Point and the highest-ranking African-American officer in the U.S. Army at the time that he served was a man named Charles Young. And in 1903, Charles Young became the acting military superintendent of Sequoia National Park, which makes him the first black superintendent of any U.S. National Park. Young was a lover of the outdoors, nature, and ecology, and made many suggestions to the Secretary of Interior on preserving vegetation and stopping erosion while he was at his post. He even persuaded local landowners to give up claims to some 3,877 acres of land within the National Park boundaries for a fair price. Personally, I think those people were crazy, but he succeeded in his task nonetheless. Although, in true bureaucratic fashion, the government didn't follow through on its payment for 10 years, which just goes to show you, you cannot trust the government ever with anything. 
Young would have this to say about the parks in a 1903 military report. Indeed, a journey through this park in the Sierra Forest Reserve to the Mount Whitney country will convince even the least thoughtful man of the needfulness of preserving these mountains just as they are. In that same year, Young and his 9th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers also oversaw the escort of President Theodore Roosevelt when he came to tour the West Coast in Yosemite National Park. Obviously, this was a great honor to the Buffalo Soldiers, which had seen some of them serve with Roosevelt in Cuba at the Battle of San Juan Hill. Since that battle, though, Teddy had said some not-so-great things about the character of black soldiers that he was probably regretting. And it had to do with... I don't know if it was a mutiny, but a shooting up of the town of Brownsville, Texas. But anyways, so personally choosing his once comrades on the battlefield to act as his guard of honor may have been an apology of sorts. Thankfully, Roosevelt would later return to his progressive ways and backtrack on a lot of what he had said that we frown upon now. While I did extensively cover the Buffalo Soldiers Cavalry Regiments of the 9th and 10th, I didn't really discuss the other black troops of the 24th and 25th Infantry. That's because by telling the story of the cavalry, I was continuing from the previous entry on cowboys. But also by telling the cavalry troopers' tales, I was basically covering the infantrymen's adventures since they often shared the same posts, forts, and battlefields. But now I'll cover a little bit of the 25th Infantry Buffalo Soldiers by going into the 25th Bicycle Infantry Corps and their epic 1,900-mile journey through and around Yellowstone National Park to St. Louis, Missouri in 1897. The experimental 25th Bicycle Infantry Corps was made up, obviously, of the 25th Infantry Buffalo Soldiers who were stationed at Fort Missoula in Montana. One of their officers, 2nd Lieutenant James Moss, who graduated at the bottom of his class at West Point, suggested that the bicycle be explored as a tool and vehicle for war, much like some European armies were trying at the time, with mixed success. Although it must be said that European roads were in much better condition than these Western American ones, if there was a road at all. The reasoning behind the experiment being that bicycles don't require food or water, don't make nearly as much noise, they can be hidden more easily, they raise but little dust, you can't tell which direction they're traveling from by the track, and they can be repaired if they break down on patrol. The disadvantage being you had to carry on your persons or on your bikes the necessary repair parts and tools, not to mention your bedroll, tents, food, utensils, weapons, ammunition, clothing, water, rifle, sidearm, and much more, which weighed well over 100 pounds. But the army was on board, and the trials began. Their first action started in August of 1896 with a four-day, 126-mile ride around the town and fort of Missoula, before resting for a few days and heading out again on the 15th. Their target this time was Fort Yellowstone in Yellowstone National Park, which was a 300-mile journey one way. It only took them eight days. Two days later, after some rest and regrouping at Yellowstone, the Buffalo Soldiers set out for a tour of the park. They saw the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, waterfalls, hot springs, geysers, and they crossed the Continental Divide twice before taking another two days of rest. Lieutenant Moss would say that, quote, The soldiers were delighted with the trip, thought the sights grand, and seemed to be in the best of spirits the whole time, end quote. He'd also comment on the positive, quote, Moral effect of the seething water, the roaring of the geysers, and the sulfuric fumes, end quote. 
Not sure about the sulfuric fumes part. After taking the iconic photo of the men with their bikes at Mammoth Hot Springs, which will be up at the site, the Buffalo Soldiers proceeded to ride all the way back to Missoula for a total journey of 800 miles, and all on a bicycle. At the time, a Montana newspaper editor remarked, The prejudice against the soldiers seems to be without foundation, for if the 25th Infantry is an example of the black regiments, there is no exaggeration in the statement that there are no better troops in the service. When I was a Boy Scout, I got my Bicycling Mare badge, which required a ton of miles on a bike, including a 50-mile ride in one day. We did that 50-mile ride on the coastal islands of Georgia, and while it was beautiful and fun, my butt hurt so bad for days. These guys weren't even cavalrymen, so they weren't used to riding in a saddle, which makes me think this wasn't very comfortable for them either. But it was a good warm-up for what was coming. Despite still not being convinced of the efficacy of wartime bikes, the Army went ahead anyway and approved Lieutenant Moss's next grand adventure, which was to be a 1,900-mile expedition from Missoula to St. Louis, crossing what he called the, quote, mountainous and stony roads of Montana, the hummock earth roads of South Dakota, the sandy roads of Nebraska, and the clay roads of Missouri, end quote. And again, all on a bicycle. And a bicycle with no brakes. For this mission, he ordered 20 custom-designed Spalding bikes that would better accommodate the soldiers in their gear. The Buffalo soldiers then trained hard for two weeks before finally embarking on June 14, 1897. Here's what David McCormick wrote in The Buffalo Soldiers Who Rode Bikes about the beginning of the trip. At midday, a heavy rain pelted the riders, and the next afternoon, bad roads and another downpour forced them off their bicycles to slog along on foot, an inauspicious beginning to their overland odyssey. On the fourth day, as the men climbed into the Rockies, rain turned to blinding snow and they couldn't see past 20 feet. The steep descent presented more danger. Moss and his men had to walk their bicycles, all the while digging in their heels, lest they lose their footing and plummet downslope. Surely, they must have breathed a collective sigh of relief once the Continental Divide was behind them. But more challenges lay ahead. In 1974, the historical novelist Farron Doss led a commemorative overland journey of his own that retraced the route of the 25th Infantry Bicycle Buffalo Soldiers, and he had this to say. We thought once we reached the Continental Divide, it would be downhill all the way, but that wasn't the case. But it's a trip that every last one of us will never forget, because it was a time in our lives that we felt very proud to be doing this in their honor. In some parts of Montana, the soldiers had to shoulder their heavily laden bikes to cross flooded roads or overflowing wastewater ditches, and many of them tumbled over their handlebars on rough stretches of downhill riding. Remember, they had no brakes. And yet another time it was said that they huffed it through mountains of hail eight feet high. No matter the terrain, though, the men became experts at changing a bike's tire. McCormick also wrote, While riding between towns, the Corps, by necessity, dispensed with any semblance of formation. Each rider pedaled a path that suited him. Some caught a wagon wheel rut and stayed with it, while others steered a zigzag pattern to avoid rocks. The line of troops often strung out, opening up miles between the lead rider and last straggler. But before entering each town, the men would regroup and strike formation, 
to emphasize they were a military unit and not just black bicyclists roaming the land. These roads were usually anything but a road. They often followed wagon trails, game trails, and even railroad track beds where they jostled over the jaw-breaking ties, and many times they were forced to dismount and walk their heavy bikes as they traveled across the land. Moss would say that many of the roads were a disgrace to civilization. The Daily Missoulian reporter, Edward Eddie H. Booz, who accompanied the black troops, wrote that, quote, the only choice of roads narrowed to bad ones, and others that were worse, end quote. Booz would also comment on how the mud-covered wheels looked like discs of gumbo, which I love, and how rumors of rattlesnakes would break up an uncomfortable camp, forcing them to begin riding at night. They averaged about 52 miles per day, with the toughest and slowest stretches being the sand hills of Nebraska. Walking in sand is tough enough. I just know biking with that heavy of a bike can't be easy either, especially in temperatures of 110 degrees, which it reached for them many days. At one point, Moss drank some bad water and was out for four days, and many of the other men were doubled over with the pukes. At another point, towards the end of the journey, they came across a farmer in Missouri who rebuked their request of staying overnight in his field with the question of if they were Union soldiers, 30 years after the end of the Civil War. Booz said when they realized he meant U.S. soldiers, they said that, why, yes, they were, in fact, Union soldiers. The farmer then told them they could either stay with the pigs or be gone. Whether this encounter actually happened or not is left up to the reader, but it's still a funny anecdote. After 40 days and 1,900.2 miles, they, they concluded their journey with an escort of hundreds of local St. Louis cyclists who led them cheering into town. Despite this roaring success, Moss wasn't quite fulfilled, and he asked the army if the men could ride back to Missoula. Thankfully, they boarded a train instead. Moss would say to the St. Louis dispatch that, The trip has proved beyond peradventure my contention that the bicycle has a place in modern warfare. In every kind of weather, over all sorts of roads, we average 50 miles a day. At the end of the journey, we are all in good physical condition. He'd conclude that, quote, Under favorable conditions, the bicycle is invaluable for courier work, scouting duty, road patrolling, rapid reconnaissance, etc. End quote. The next adventure from Missoula to San Francisco was scrapped due to the Spanish-American War breaking out, and much like the 9th and 10th, the 25th Infantry Buffalo Soldiers were shipped to Cuba, but without their bicycles. And that concludes my series on the Buffalo Soldiers, and more broadly, of blacks in the American West. I've covered the Spanish, Mexicans, Africans, frontiersmen, fur trappers, migrants, explorers, religious pioneers, Mormons, cowboys, Indians, wars, skirmishes, battles, massacres, heroes, devils, outlaws, lawmen, the U.S. Army and our national parks, and a whole bunch more, and all through the eyes of our African-American and black brothers and sisters. While I'm very proud of these episodes, I know there's a lot left to discover and learn, so stay tuned as I find other unique ways to tell you about the wonderfully wild and wooly American Southwest. For my next series, I was going to cover the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 and the triumph, however brief, of the Native Americans, after talking for countless hours and many episodes of their many, many defeats. But to hand them another defeat, I'm going to put that one on hold. Instead, I'm going to cover something I've been excited to talk about since the first episode I did over the bison. I didn't know I was going to be so excited about this, but 
Well, you'll just have to find out. So stick around for next time when I'll discuss the now-extinct megafauna of the American Southwest and broader North American continent. Think cave bears, dire wolves, giant ground sloths, mastodons, saber-toothed tigers, American lions, beavers the size of SUVs, horses, camels, and mammoths. <laughs>